0: This podcast and the many that follow are proudly brought to you by our partner, Titleist, the number one ball in golf. Now, as it relates to earning an edge, our friends at Titleist have been the leaders since the early 1900s. And in order to compete and win at the highest level, frankly, there's no room for a second best. For this reason, the best players in the world trust Titleist. Hi there, Cameron McCormick from Alters Performance, and this is the Earn Your Edge podcast. And today we're joined by two of the brightest in the business from the Titleist team. Forty Pitts and J.J. Van Wiesenbeek, who spend their waking and sleeping hours working to provide equipment solutions to the best professional players in the world. Forty is Titleist Lead Tour Consultant for Golf Ball Performance, and J.J. is Titleist Lead Tour Equipment Consultant. Forty and J.J., welcome, guys. Thanks for having us, Kim. Now I couldn't possibly do justice to y'all's resumes or bios, so let's kick things off by covering how you can be doing what you're doing. Forty, how about uh, how about you go first?
1: Sure. Um, let's see. I've been with the company for 25 years now. I actually started in the golf club side of the business when I when I first started. I've, I've been in R and D my all 25 years with the company. So I spent time learning about golf clubs, golf club performance for the first uh, seven, eight years uh, of my career here, and then had an opportunity to move back to the East Coast, where I am from originally. Boston, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was great. Uh, And had a chance to work out of uh, R&D for golf balls. And prior to that, I grew up in a a golfing family, so I've been involved with the game pretty much my whole life. My my dad was a, a strong amateur player in the New England area for a very long time, and uh, so I've just, I, I, I've grown up with the game and to have an opportunity to, to do what I do, uh, with Titleist is, has just been a dream come true.
0: Excellent. How
2: about you, JJ? So I was part of the, uh, professional golf management program at Penn state, and I was lucky enough to work at some great golf courses and meet some, uh, really exciting, uh, smart people who happened to be into equipment and I'd work for some golf companies. And so I, uh, started working for a 13 years ago. And has had a chance in on the Web.com and PGA Tour to do some stuff with Coper Golf and then on the Titleist Golf Club side. So I've been between the Web.com and the PGA Tour for about the last eight years now.
0: Cool. With the depth of experience that you guys have so far, there's got to be a lot of excitement in the air. Now, granted, there's been a lot of excitement over the 10, 12 years for you, JJ, and the 25 for you, 40. But with uh, the recent back-to-back wins, winning all the equipment counts, how much of a barometer for success is that for you guys on a personal level and then from a company level? Always been winning the ball count for a long time. <laughs> of course, you have. <laughs>
1: that's, that's all I've ever known.
0: <laughs> there you go. Then JJ, what about the equipment? Uh, equipment counts. Talk to about that success. So it's been a really exciting
2: time. I mean, it's it's always when you work with players at this level, they're very disconcerting. Is they they're playing for a lot of money every week and their livelihood. So for them to to choose your product overwhelmingly you know, when drivers and fairways, hybrids, irons, wedges, putter, and golf ball. um, It's very exciting time for us at Titleist.
0: How much of a trickle down do you see at the consumer level and how immediate do you feel like, or do you see that effect? So for me on the club side, it's not that I are seeing sales numbers, but you
2: know, when we have our sales reps come out and uh, we just had our yearly sales meeting, you know, and the feedback we're hearing from those guys on how a buzz is out in uh, the environment and how many players want to try the product. You know, I think it's, it's stemming down that tide.
0: And, you know, we always say if you, if you try a Titleist, you're going to buy a Titleist. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Now, take us back in time, I guess, to the start of it was, it was called the Speed Project, right? I'm curious as to the timeline from uh, idea into maybe a CAD to robot testing and ultimately road testing it with players.
2: Yeah, so with that speed project, is it? it's normally, you know, two to four years. So th- this particular case was about three years prior, you know, when we first are working CAD designs and aerodynamic modeling and things like that. And uh, Stephanie Latrell's team uh, in R&D was really trying to innovate some things and kind of get outside the box and, and take the reins off some things we did. And then we really kind of pushed them hard on getting hitting hittable prototypes where we could get player feedback. You know, that's one thing is everything looks great on a computer sometimes, but, you know, having a model to hit and then send it back to them to be able to refine, you know, the look and the sound and the feel as well as the the launch spin and speed performance.
0: And how quickly from, let's say you started three years ago, staff working on innovations and then trying to push the, I guess, the front end load and ability to get uh, prototypes or testable product in players' hands, how quickly were you able to do that?
2: Normally, even once that CAD is, you know, we have versions of it, it, it'll take a few months. You know, our first prototypes, Stephanie was working with our vendors and was actually putting them in her luggage to bring back so we could get immediate feedback and they could go back and refine it. So, you know, we had first hittable prototypes probably about nine months uh,
0: to 12 months prior to the launch of, uh, of TS. Nice. And how much from those hittable prototypes did you take feedback back into R and D and say, here's what we need to refine? Meaning, uh, once the players put their hands on those hittable product, was that for all intents and purposes the final piece, the final product?
2: No, there's a lot of that that is, is pretty final. But there was, um, you know, obviously we can make some CG changes, we can make color changes, we can make the general shape is is set. But there's there was still some refinement that that we took a really good product and, and made it a great product.
0: Mm, nice. Now I'm known for not necessarily finding the fairways. So if this question comes as uh, from left field or if this is supposedly out of bounds, then you tell me so and protect the knowledge. But when you said taking the reins off and working to push the boundaries of innovation, can you speak to that at all? What reins were taken off in the development or the design of uh, the TS driver?
2: I think the big thing for us is, you know, we were always big on, on total performance. So you, you have to walk a fine line, you know, when you're potentially reducing some spins and things like that, you know, so when they're, they're working in that speed chassis, is it okay? How much spins too much spin for the top players in the world and how far can we go in terms of shape? Those are things that, you know, when you work more in a traditional environment, you got to be careful of. So I think Dan Stone and Stephanie, did a great job, you know. Take the TS2. Is how do I make a really high MOI driver and make it really gorgeous? And then in TS3, is how do I just find speed in every little nook and corner
0: from the aerodynamic designs to the face technology and things like that? And if you can specifically speak to what is it about the TS drivers that's producing the impro- improvements or in- and gains in performance that's, I guess, motivating the best players in the world to um, <laughs> to flock to it?
2: So the big thing is we had uh, we had some pretty big aerodynamic improvements, which was was pretty telling early on. They did a really good job with the improved face construction where we were getting better ball speeds across the face. So we have the club moving faster. We have the ball leaving the face faster. They did some really kind of innovative things in manufacturing and design from the crown construction and be able to stay with an all-titanium construction and really move that CG in good spots and Relation to the neutral access and get really good ball speeds returns. So it was kind of getting a little bit everywhere. You know, we're at a point in time where it's hard to kind of blow the doors off. But mm-hmm. if you found a little in this corner, a little that corner, eventually you got a you got a pretty decent-sized pile.
0: Yeah, and indeed, at the level that you guys are fitting, whether it's equipment or golf balls, you're working on that principle of aggregation of marginal gains, and the marginal gains are small, but yet there are differentiators in 40. To toss a question at you, speaking of differentiators, I had an opportunity a couple of weeks back to visit both the ball plant and R&D, and you were uh, nice enough to join me and uh, guide me along in that tour, and I was essentially Given a chance to look behind the curtain, and quite frankly, felt like a kid in a candy store. I'm not too sure how much you can disclose without going again out of bounds, but I'll ask you to elaborate if you can on the differentiators in both R and D and manufacturing. Or, said another way, what is it behind and inside the DNA of the number one ball in golf?
1: Yeah, and we we appreciated hosting you and having you come down, and and we would invite a lot of players, and and we want them to see the process because. I don't think they truly realize what it takes, and you know what goes into developing a golf ball. I do have to be careful with some things I say in terms <laughs> of, of differentiators, but probably the biggest one is is just our manufacturing process and and the consistency of the product. I mean, those are two of the the bigger things. And you know, if you look, we we control every step of the process, and and not all ball manufacturers can say that, and that's obviously critical. And if if you you're not controlling every step, you don't necessarily know what they're doing. So if you're just sourcing a product as opposed to manufacturing it yourself, you're not in total control. So those are certainly two of the bigger things uh, that differentiate us from from some of the others. The other thing, as you mentioned, the, the IP, the intellectual property that we have, uh, we are clearly the leader in in that and And we know how challenging it is for us uh working around some of the other competitors of patents i you can only imagine what it's like for them working around ours, so you know that's a big ad, a competitive advantage for us and the other thing that that and I'm not sure all the other companies do, but we have two full time r and d staff who are out on the professional tours gathering feedback from the best players in the world so you know as we're developing and working on things for the future we're we're keeping in touch with the players playing now how the game is being played what they look for in their in their golf ball and what else they might like so uh, again that day to day interaction with the players is critical we we
0: need that feedback And touching a little bit more on something that you just mentioned right there, IP, and the subject that I brought up real briefly, innovation. It was all impressive for me, but uh, what was substantively uh, impressive, what stood out is I think there were over 45 scientists on staff at the golf ball plant or at least collaborating on golf ball. I'm not too sure, I'll let you guys describe how many are doing the same thing on the equipment side. And the patents more than doubling the nearest competitor. Where does all this innovation come from? Is Titleist, I guess, sorting for innovation, the hiring process? Is it embedded into the corporate culture or is it uh, and is it incentivized at any level internally? I know that's a big, broad question. And then maybe 40, you go first and then JJ, you can follow.
1: Yeah. And and really, it's all of it. It, It's, you know, we look at people outside the, the industry, not just necessarily golf people, it is certainly a big part of our culture. And, and that's one of the things. And that's why we always like to invite people to our plants and R and D tours and things like that. Cause, you know, every time you meet a Titleist uh, employee, ask them how long they've worked for the company. It's oh, 20 years, 25 years, 30 years. I met a guy the other night who's been with the company 52 years. It's, it's just part of our culture. So yeah. And then, yeah, there is some incentive to certainly, uh, if you can get a patent, uh, and all that, there is some, uh, some incentive there as well from the company.
0: Mm-hmm. And JJ, on that, on the equipment side, uh, to speak to the, I guess, the, the high science resource, human resource that's being applied to development side. Yeah,
2: I'd say, uh, you know, our R&D department on the West Coast has over 60, you know, engineers, CAD, et cetera, with it. You know, and there's, when they're looking for a new engineer, they're not looking for a golf club engineer necessarily. They're looking for the best engineer possible. You know, we have people from you know, aerospace, plastics, chemical companies, you know, as well as golf club engineers, you know, and I'd so consider a big resource for us is I always go with the Bob Vokey is we also have the other really good research department, which is the PGA Tour. <laughs> uh, and you get really good feedback when you w- work with players of that caliber. So uh, we do a really good job of leveraging the Titleist Performance Institute and having Players hit prototypes and things like that and getting that feedback and our R&D team uh, has a a number of really good golfers on it who speak golfers, so they can sit there with
0: a player and understand the feedback they're giving it and translate it into a science. Yeah, and that's a really good segue into a question I've been wanting to ask when you're talking about uh, science being one thing and then uh, road testing the effectiveness uh, for the best players in the world. that uh, have the most amazingly refined senses, feel, sight, sound, etc. There are... Infinitely discerning, but at the same time looking for gains in any possible area. What is that process like in validating gains and proving it uh, with the best players in the world when auditioning, let's say, a driver first, JJ, and then ultimately the uh, the the new golf ball, the nineteen V one or V one X? I think it'll vary from player to player in terms of you know if we take something as simple as a driver,
2: is we have other we have certain players who are very analytical and we're going to spend a lot of time on a launch monitor. And we're going to look at the the most minute details in terms of CG location and loft and lie and setting and length and shaft. And then we have other players like uh, take a Jeff Ogilvie is he said, you can put the orange box behind me, but I don't really need it because I got eyes and I go play golf. <laughs> um, and we'll hit about six on the range and then we go to the golf course and it works or it doesn't. So, you know, we'll have both levels of players still to this day. And, and it's being able to kind of get it to a situation where that player can still shoot the lowest score possible. At the end of the day, that's our goal, is to help every player play better, uh, whatever that equals, whether it's direction or
0: controlling launch or moving CG or getting something that just looks or sounds different. We want to do it all. And on the analytics side, maybe a two-part question, give me an example of a player that would be more looking for the quantitative to compel them to change or to validate the need for a change and is there any, I guess, separation based on age, the younger players having grown up being more exposed to that quantitative side?
2: I'd say in general, the younger players are a little bit more sensitive to that data just because like to your your point. But if we take a player like a Justin Thomas, is he knows his numbers, he knows what, but at the same time, there's an old school quality to him in that there's a look and feel. And I, I got to hit that cut that holds up against the wind. I got to be able to hit the high bomb and have that thing chasing it. And it's got to feel a certain way. The shaft's got to load a certain way. And, you know, we can look at them on motion capture and how that shaft loads. But, you know, at the end of the day, he just has
0: a feel that at transition, I know what that is. And I and when it when I get it, I know it. 40, how different or similar is that process when players are out there auditioning the 19 V1 V1 X in advance of maybe putting it in play in Vegas or at any event for that matter?
1: Yeah, it's it's probably a little more challenging with the golf ball. It's, it's, you know, the most regulated piece of equipment out here. So there's there's only so many things that we can do. And, you know, to get that big, big jump, you know, if we go back 20 years back to wound golf balls and that big jump when Pro V1 first came out and everyone was hitting it significantly further and and still controlling shots and things like that, you know, it's a little different world now that the changes that we can make to the product aren't quite as big. As, as back then, so for for some players, there'll be some players. Even though we've made a, a nice change, like with these, with the new 2019 Pro V1 Pro V1X, we've we've built a little more ball speed potentially into these, potentially a couple more yards out of them. So some guys are gonna are gonna pick up on that, but there're gonna be other guys who just not quite noticeable enough. So and again, it it becomes more challenging with with golf balls to make that that big jump. But with that said, and like JJ said, every, you know, this game is an individual sport and it's player dependent. And we've certainly seen some guys, you know, move into this product and see some really nice results. You know, Charles Howell, first week playing it, uh, you know, wins the RSM with it. So, you know, examples like that. And in fact, just this past weekend uh, on the Champions Tour, we we had the top three players playing the new 19 uh, Pro V1, Tom Lehman with the win and... David Tom's and Bernhard Long are finishing second and third. So, so again, we make the product better. We wouldn't come out with it if it's if it's better. And some guys, it's it's you're going to see a big a big improvement, and other guys it, it may be a, a smaller one.
0: Going back to the innovation piece real quick, because JJ, you alluded to it. Are there any examples of innovation in either past product line or current product line that came from analogous markets, applications, I guess, to golf ball and club design from outside of golf? Yeah, I, I thought about that a little bit and I haven't found
2: you know, a, a specific instance where we can specifically point like well we were trying to go this and mm-hmm. we stumbled on that but i think what we we do find is because of the human element sometimes you know you'll you'll stare at a computer screen and our r&d teams do such a good job at going okay this is what it should do and you know we should be seeing you know point seven miles an hour here and this is going to increase launch by 0.5 and then a player hits it and they're two miles an hour faster You're like well what happened <laughs> um, you know and sometimes you get those cgs look Matching up and you get that look that's just right and a player just knows it's going to go straight and they just add a little more speed and the robot just
0: doesn't do what that when you get the visual and all those other components right for the right player. Yeah. And I guess my question has some level of redundancy there because you said in the hiring process, you're not hiring specifically those with applied science in the Gulf space. You're hiring or in the R&D department, you're hiring scientists that are bringing core competencies from whether that be material science or chemical science, or let's say aeronautical science, all the different domains, theologies, Uh, And so, therefore, they're bringing innovations from outside into golf. My question is, yeah, as I said before, redundant. But moving on, nonetheless, a buyer beware question. Uh, What elements in club design are merely fluff and frill and don't contribute uh, materially to performance? And I guess the reason I'm asking this question is for the recreational players out there, we've got to help them separate the wheat from the chaff.
2: Yeah, I'd say in club, as opposed to calling out You know, specific things I'd say, you know, sometimes I'd be a little concerned of, you know, the, uh, the claims, you know, when you're out and uh, you're looking for banks and the, every bank is saving you a certain amount of money. And one bank says, I'll save you 10 times that amount. (laughs) Um, you know, there's always, uh, to be a little wary of that, you know, I I'd say for the average golfer is, is there's going to be a lot of specifics to you situations and as much as it's tempting in the, in the days of online shopping of to just click and have my driver show up at my door in two days, because some article told me it's good, is you'd be really surprised how much a club fitting and getting things set for you and that you know, the shaft that works in this, it's not an overwhelming flat, oh, yep, this works in everything and that loft and that face angle and that line and that CG location work all the time. So you'd be really more disconcerting as the consumer of saying, let me go get fit and see what this does in a fit setting for me, because you'd be amazed the off the rack versus the made to made specifically for you situation, how much different it can be.
0: Yeah. And maybe a follow up to that is when you guys are out there fitting the best players in the world and you've found their performance DNA for an equipment for a golf ball, how Uh, stable is that over time or how regularly would they be changing, whether it's the hosel configuration, the physical loft of the golf club, the head itself or the golf ball golf club combination? So I would say from our
2: standpoint is, you know, and 40 can speak to golf ball more than, more than I can, is that, you know, it's really more when sometimes I, I find when players might be moving from brands or things like that, you know, is, we are searching the feedback of our players a lot so we're we're trying not to move spins way up, spins way down, CGs all over the place to where it's going to affect our players performance. You know, occasionally, you know, as players work with their with their swing instructors and their swings are changing or we work with some younger players who are adding a lot of speed over the years, you know, when we look at a player that might have turned pro in the low 160s and now they're in the low 170s is we're having to adjust shaft or equipment or head type and, or lofts as they develop and as those swings change in 40 from the golf ball side?
1: Yeah, well, first of all, there's no fluff in the golf ball. Um, <laughs> every piece is needed. And certainly, you know, our strategy, uh, the, the pyramid of influence, and, and I think a lot of amateur golfers look to the PGA Tour as, as the top of that pyramid and, mm-hmm. and to emulate uh, how they play and what they play with and, and things like that. Certainly on, on the golf ball, some of the things you have to be careful of is there's more to it than just looking at numbers on a launch monitor. Certainly they, they can be important, but the golf ball is, is used with, with every, every club, every, every shot. So it's, it's difficult to look at that with, with just numbers. So you really got to go out to the golf course and try the different options, see how they perform in certain conditions and make the best decision. And certainly we have, uh, you know, great options to choose from for for the average amateur to to look at but yeah it it just you just want to be careful fitting amateurs fitting for a golf ball by hitting on a launch monitor into a net say that's not the proper way to to fit the golf ball so we got to look beyond just that
0: yeah. And, and that's, uh, one of the questions I had, uh, for a little bit from this point. But since you answered it, we'll go to the, the golf club side. What's the worst advice you hear when tuning equipment to the best players in the world and also advice to the average player? The worst advice, the kind of the, the warning. And I think maybe you've already answered that, JJ, that don't settle for the off the rack, the buy it on Amazon go out there and get custom fit. So maybe even and as an extension of that, what would be the best advice in terms of the resource? Where should they go? You know, we have an incredible environment around the world really of
2: uh, product specialists that, that are, are part of the, our Titleist umbrella that are constantly trained and updated. They visit our facilities in Carlsbad for meetings with R&D, meetings with with other fitters, how do they get better? You know, just like we're trying to make our product better, we're trying to make our people better at what they do. Where, you know, Stephanie and Marnie and Dan are, are meeting with these product specialists every year to teach them about our new product, what to do, what are we learning and things like that. So on Titleist.com, you can go in and see which product
0: specialists are near you. What has surprised you guys most in fitting clubs and balls to the best in the world, and maybe think back to a, a story over the last two or three years, and I think what I'm getting at here is that the recreational player that watches golf on TV really is many steps removed from being able to experience what it's like to have that skill level, or be able to see that skill level, and me being a coach on the PGA European LPGA Tour, I get. An up close and personal experience of that uh, on a weekly basis. And you guys do the exact same thing. So, is there anything that you can offer to further enlighten the recreational player, or maybe it's the developmental junior or collegiate player that's trying to take that next leap uh, into uh, developing their skill?
2: 40, why don't you take that one? You've done this longer.
1: yeah, the, the the great thing about working with tour players uh, and, and you know, elite golfers is they, they do pick up on on little things. And to the point where uh, many times we're surprised, you know, when we may make a slight little change to something, make a prototype and bring it to the guys and, and ask them to, you know, let us know what difference they may notice be, between those golf balls. And, and sometimes, you know, a lot of times we're amazed at the, some of the things they do pick up on. You know, whether it's just a slightly different feel or sound, or, you know, even if it's only a hundred RPMs more spin or, or a, you know, a yard higher at, at its peak. And, and those guys really, they, they pick up on that. And, you know, sometimes we joke and we're like, oh, these guys, these, these guys can be crazy sometimes with <laughs> some of the, that they, they notice or they talk about or some of the things that we hear. But, Again, like you said, they are so so fine tuned and so dialed into what they they like to see that you know you give them something even a little bit different and that and that could be enough. And one of the things we always have to be careful of is is you know you want the player to obviously trust and know what the product's going to do. And any little bit of doubt you know can be it could be the difference from making the cut or not making the cut, or from winning and not winning. So that's the challenge. Is is you know, when is a guy going to notice the little change that we did or not? Because that that could affect what, what product he ends
0: up playing. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So a couple of quick hits, maybe to kind of put some closure around our conversation. And this one's kind of a Bryson DeChambeau-inspired question. He's an advocate for golf ball floating to find uh, the balance point of the golf ball. And there's a lot of Discussion out there, and and I guess in my own self interest, I'm intrigued given um, what I was uh, allowed to witness at the R and D facilities a few weeks back. So, Forty, can you speak to the importance as best you can on yeah, that subject?
1: Yeah, that that floating test, you, you do have to be careful with that test. You know, it o- it only takes the width of a human hair to 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 make a ball have a have a heavy side. So. Mm-hmm the majority of golf balls are are, are gonna float to the top. So it's a very subjective test. It depends on how much water, how much salt you're adding, things like that. All those are gonna influence how that ball is is gonna end up floating. So it's a test we we do on occasion, but boy, it it can be very misleading. You have to be careful with it.
0: Cool. I will uh, take that one off the list to uh, research any more about then. So thank thank you for alleviating that work burden. Uh, how about on the club side the importance of finding the exact sweet spot of a club by any of the means possible, whether you kind of hold the the shaft around the balance point between the thumb and index finger and tap it with uh, with at or a pin or whether you have uh, some of the m- machines that out there out there that test uh, the i guess the moi of the club yeah, I think on the
2: golf club is this is where some of the human element is is we will find certain players that'll chase c g and then we have other players who have a predominant hit location by moving CG to their hit location helps support us in terms of ball speed and uh, stabilizing launch and spin. To that sense, it's somewhat player dependent and is it a player who chases CG and we want to keep things really, really neutral because they're going to find it and we want to keep them towards center hit or is it a player who's always missing on the toe so we better put the CG out that way a little bit to prevent the left miss, as well as to stabilize that hit, and also help them with ball speed.
0: Yeah, understand. And second to last question: What have you guys learned? And maybe forty. I'll start with you. In the last 365 days, that has most improved your ability to uh, to help the players that you uh, get to work with.
1: Really, the biggest thing for me is 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 every day is an opportunity to learn something new. Learn something about the player, but the biggest thing is just building that relationship. The, the more we get to know these players, things they look for in their product, things they like, things they don't like, that helps us. So, so really it's that, it's that, that relationship, that human interaction uh, with players. You know, I've been doing this for 25 years, so I've talked to a lot of players over the years, but again, every day I, I look into it and, and I say, what am I going to learn today? And building on those relationships is is probably the biggest thing for me right now
2: and JJ yeah I, I'd have to agree with 40 I mean I I joke uh with R&D and we've had some questions you know just about being the number one driver on the PJ Tour the first few weeks is I'm like well TS helps a lot <laughs> uh makes things easier when the ball's leaving the face really fast <laughs> um to work on the other parts of uh fitting conditions you know but the more time you get to spend with with these players, you get to know everybody's kind of little bio in your head on, OK, this is where the face angle this player likes to see. This is the sound this player likes to hear. And, you know, the shafts that, you know, as we keep our databases, these are shafts we've tried with success and not success. And you start to see Ben profiles so you can really build it out in that long term relationship and, and helping that player succeed at the highest levels.
0: Well, you guys have shed an amazing light on fitting the games for the best players in the world. I think the listeners can understand that the best players can tell a three feet of difference in, uh, let's say, the apex or the peak height the ball travels at, a 100 RPM more or less off the club face. A discernible difference to them is indiscernible to the recreational player in ball speed off the club face. They're the most discerning athletes on the planet and they choose Titleist for the primary reason that they succeed based on their ability to control a ball. After all, that's what they get paid on, their ability to shoot the lowest score possible. I guess there's no room for second best in their mind and there shouldn't be in anyone's for that matter when they're trying to shoot a lower score or enjoy themselves on the golf course so from myself and Corey and all of us at Ulster Performance and anyone that listens to this I guess a big thanks for contributing both of you and everyone at Tireless for helping us find the best equipment and giving us the best chance to succeed when we teed up appreciate that thank you thanks Cam thanks for your time guys appreciate it Thanks very
2: much for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about Altus Performance, go check out altusperformance.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Team Altus and Instagram at Altus Performance. Also, thanks to Cordy Walker for his wonderful production work on this and coming episodes of Earn Your Edge.